Well, good morning, church. How you guys doing? It's so good to call you my forever family. It really is. I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been brought into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into this world now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. The Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. I want to begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment and pray. Father God, on this 20th anniversary of 9-11, we remember and honor the lives that were lost in this tragedy. We give thanks for those who served and saved and rendered aid and assistance. We pray you would comfort those who continue to live with loss. 
May we continue to seek justice and peace where it is within our ability and rely on you when the ability escapes us. We also want to pray for the horrible situation in Afghanistan. We pray for those who were tragically left behind, that they would be protected and rescued. We pray for the families and friends who are are grieving the loss of the 13 soldiers. We pray for the healing of the 12 service members that were wounded. We pray for the protection, provision, and your powerful presence with the Afghan Christians. We pray that the efforts of the Taliban and other terrorist organizations would be thwarted. All of this is a reminder that we live in uncertain, sad, and dangerous world. We always have, always will, but your sovereignty is secure, your love is unchanging, and your promises are altogether sure. We pray for our city, state, national, spiritual leaders, political leaders, for good policies, good intelligence, good character, good decisions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. May we be humble and confident in speaking and standing up for the truth and love. God, you are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God, and we pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Believe is our current teaching series, Gospel According to John. We've only got about five more weeks, and we will be finished up with this book study, and we'll be heading into a new study. Uh, The title of this weekend's message is Sorrowful Yet Always Rejoicing. It almost sounds like a contradiction, but it isn't. As you will see as we work through this text, John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33 is our text that was just read. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and follow along. Take a look at your sermon notes at the... uh, to quote the two quotes there on the top of the sermon notes. The first one is by A.W. Tozer. This is what he says. The people of God ought to be the happiest people in all the wide world. People should be coming to us constantly and asking the source of our joy and delight. Here's the next quote. You probably have heard me say this many times before. There is a joy in Christ that all the success in this world can't give you. Now think about how you would define success, and however that might be, it doesn't even, the joy in that success doesn't even come close to the joy that we have in Christ. That's the point of that. There is a joy in Christ that all the success in this world can't give you. Now listen to me, in all the suffering in this world can never take it from you. Uh, Peter says, he's talking to second-generation Christians, 1 Peter 1.8. He says, though you, have, though you have not seen him, speaking second-generation Christians who didn't get, they weren't eyewitnesses of Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Inexpressible? Yeah, it's indescribable. Glorious? Yeah, it's indestructible. No one can take that joy from you. 
It's amazing. It's an amazing joy. That's what we're talking about here. So let's, let's look at this first question that I believe our text helps us to answer. What is Christian joy? It is, here's your first fill in the blank, it is unavoidable. Unavoidable, look at verse 16. A little while, this is Jesus speaking, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will, you will see me. Now, Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. By the way, this is hours away from him hanging on the cross for all of mankind. And so he's giving his disciples, it's called the upper room discourse, and he's giving his disciples some final instructions and, uh, because they're going to be facing torture and martyrdom as they go throughout the world proclaiming the gospel of the resurrected Savior. And so he's preparing them, and of course he's in this section he's talking specifically about how they can have joy regardless of what goes down and so he's saying here in verse 16 a little while and you will see me no longer and again a little while you will see me again so he's talking about his death and resurrection verses 17 and 18 the disciples are confused and then in verses 19 through 20 Jesus gives an explanation he says you are sorrowful because he's talking about he's he's leaving So they're sorrowful, but then he goes, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now here's what's important. I think that Jesus wants us to understand this. I think this text helps us with this, that the joy that Christ gives you can be subdued and even swamped by sorrow, but it is never extinguished and will always resurface. Here's some reasons for that. So why is this joy unavoidable? There's three reasons there on your notes. Here's the first one, because God is a God of joy. So this joy is inevitable if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It's unavoidable. Why? Because God is a God of joy. I gave you some verses there to help you to understand that. We see in Proverbs 8, 22 through 31, God rejoices over creation. Zephaniah 3, 17, we see him rejoicing over us. And then Luke 10, 21, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So when you think of God, do you think of God as a rejoicing God, a joy-filled God? I hope you do because that's very biblical. And so it's unavoidable if you're a follower of Christ because God is a God of joy, but also here's the second one, because the gospel is a message of joy. Good news of what? Great joy. I bring you good news of great joy. That's what the angel said to the, to the shepherds. We bring you good news of great joy. This good news will bring great joy into your life. And so it's unavoidable because God is a God of joy, because the gospel is a message of of joy. And then here's the third one, because the Christian life is a life of joy. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, it gives us the list of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so it says, if the Holy Spirit's working in your life, you're walking in the Spirit, you're filled with the Spirit, then you're going to experience love, joy, it's part of the list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and then the list goes on. So joy is part of that, and so it's unavoidable. If you're truly walking with Christ, if you have Christ in your life, you will inevitably have joy for those three different reasons. Because God is a God of joy, because the gospel is a message of joy, because the Christian life is a life of joy. Now, here's the next one. So what is Christian joy? It is unavoidable, but it's also uncircumstantial. 
It's uncircumstantial. It is not based on favorable circumstances like the world's joy. Now, you're going to hear me use the back and forth, and I know that sometimes we, we like to make the distinction between happiness and joy, and happiness is based on happenings, and joy is based on what we have in Christ. But I'm going to use the word joy back and forth, that the world has a joy, and, but, but it's not like the joy that we have in Christ. So don't be confused by that. But, uh, but the joy of the world is circumstantial joy. It's based on circumstances. Ours is not a circumstantial joy. Note the metaphor that Jesus uses here. Look at verse 21 through 22. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. That's not true. There's a lot of pain in childbirth. Not that I would know, but other than being there when my wife uh, gave birth to our three, and I was the Lamaze coach. Lamaze, is that, is, that what, is that how it is? Yeah, it's been so many years ago. Lamaze, I was the Lamaze coach, and I was a pretty good coach. Yeah, even if I say so myself, my wife wouldn't say that. He was a sorry coach. I mean, because I did bring a book to read while she was in labor. Is there something wrong with that? I just say, I don't want to kill, you know, this is just a lot of time right here. But she was in labor for like 24 hours, so I got a couple books read. I'm kidding. I didn't take any books, believe me. <laughs> but you know what was crazy about this is that uh, she was in 24 hours of labor that first, first go-round. And uh, so there was a time in that that, uh, that I, th- I said the wrong thing. I shouldn't have said this, but she was in extreme pain. I go, are you having some discomfort? There's something along those lines. And if looks could kill, I would not be the pastor here. I would be gone. She would have murdered me. And she had that look on her face. But what was fascinating about this is that she ended up having to go in for a C-section and a lot of recovery, and then we, she did C-sections for the next two. There was still pain involved, believe me, like major surgery to pull a baby out of your abdomen. But, uh, but with each one, when she held that baby in her arms after that pain, she, she could remember the pain, believe me. But the joy of that baby overshadowed the pain. That's what Jesus is saying here. She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So he's using that as a, helping us to understand the joy that we have. And he says, so also you have sorrow now. He's talking to his disciples. He says, I've told you I'm going to leave. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Oh, my goodness, that's beautiful. I've been meditating on that this last week. This is, that's, That's a beautiful statement. I mean, that's part of our intro. We've heard that for months, months on end. And no one will take your joy from you. That's right on. That's the joy that he gives us. No one can take that joy from you. I had someone uh, yesterday say, well, I've got a couple people that have taken that joy from me. And I said, well, then it's not this kind of joy then. It's circumstantial joy. And I know they're irritating, but uh, how many have a few people in your life that are kind of irritating? Okay. And hopefully they're not sitting next to you. How many would say you're sitting next to... not sitting next to you, okay. We'll pray for you at the end of the service that they won't take your joy from you. But actually, if, it, if they do take your joy from you, it's because you don't have this kind of joy. This is, this is a non-circumstantial joy. It's hard, especially when you have irritating people around you. But, uh, but that's what he's saying. No one can take your joy from you. 
So, so this idea here, this uh, joy that is uncircumstantial, the pain is not over, but, but that she no longer remembers the anguish. The word remembers there, the anguish no longer dominates or controls her life is the idea there. She can still recall it. She still has to recover and all of that. But, but it doesn't control her life. The joy doesn't eliminate the suffering, but overshadows the suffering. The baby born helps her to forget her pain in some ways. So let me give you some more fill-in-the-blanks to help you understand that. So the opposite of joy is not sadness, but hopelessness. So I, I've had people, Christians, that say, well, I don't know how you can be sorrowful and yet at the same time be rejoicing. Sounds like a contradiction. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Well, it's biblical, and it's how you define joy. Uh, the opposite of joy is not sadness. Because oftentimes when you'd ask people, what's the opposite of joy? They say, oh, sadness. Well, actually, it's not. It's ex- it actually hopelessness. Hopelessness. Here's the next thought on your notes. Christian joy can coexist with sorrow. Christian joy can coexist with sorrow. Let me give you a couple uh, verses for that, just to show you this is biblically-based truth. Uh, I titled this message, Sorrowful Yet Always Rejoicing, and it's found in 2 Corinthians 6.10. So Paul is kind of walking through, this is the existence of life for all of us that are followers of Christ, and he says, sorrowful, yet also rejoicing. Now, he's not saying that, when you study that phrase, he's not saying that there's this sequential thing happening, that sometimes you'll be sorrowful, sometimes you'll be rejoicing. It's not sequential, it's simultaneous. He's saying simultaneously you're going to be sorrowful and yet you'll be rejoicing even in that sorrow. There'll be a hope in that. I just did about three funerals uh, in the last couple weeks. I think between Scott and I we've done uh, a little over ten funerals this year. And um, most of what I did, and I'm, I'm pretty sure with him too, they were all believers. They make much easier funerals. But this is what I found consistent in all of the funerals that I've done is this verse in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 where it says we grieve as believers. We grieve, but not like the world grieves because we have what? We have hope. So we grieve, we grieve like the world, we take losses, we take hits and all that, but we don't grieve just like them because we have hope, we have joy, we, we can rejoice even in the midst of our suffering because of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Christian joy can coexist with sorrow. Here's your next thought on your notes. It is the joy that gets us through the sorrow. It is the joy that gets us through the sorrow. There's a great verse here, it's been a really helpful verse for me, Ecclesiastes 5.20. Listen to what he says. He will not much remember the days of his life. The writer there in Ecclesiastes, he will not much remember the days of his life. Speaking of a believer like you and I, he will not much remember the days of his life because you keep him occupied with joy in his heart. (laughs) Hey, wait a minute. I can remember some pretty harsh days in the past and they're pretty troubling and they're still haunting me. Well, if you understood the joy that he has, you will not much remember those days because he will keep you occupied with joy in, in your heart. Yeah, you're gonna grieve that, and there's gonna be sorrow, and yet there's a, there's a joy that overshadows, overshadows, overtakes that, that sorrow, that suffering. He will not much remember the days of his life because you keep him occupied with joy in his heart. I love that verse. If you're as old as I am,
Where was I going to go with that? For some reason, my ADD just kicked in. I got distracted. If you're as old as I am, 45 years old, uh, no, when you start getting up in the years, you certainly take, take a beating in life. I'm just, that's all I'm just saying. The older you get, the more you realize, wow, there's some crazy stuff. And I'm just telling you that you think it might get better, but the longer you, the longer you live in this fallen world, the sin and suffering, you take a beating. I'm just telling you that. And yet I've got, to, as I look back on this and as I process it, as I grieve it, as I work through this, that I can say, that he will not much remember the days of his life because he keeps me occupied with joy in my heart. It's really hard, it's difficult, and yet at the same time there's this joy that we have in him. It's just, it's absolutely, absolutely amazing. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Joy is not a denial of reality. This really troubles me when I come across Christians that, that are in denial of the reality that they're going through. It's like, put on a happy face, come on, things could be worse. It's like, come on, you should be grieving this. You should be grieving this. That, that's, that's harsh. So it's not a denial of the reality that you're going through. But I happen to believe that Christians should be, and this might sound crazy, but, and this is my understanding of Scripture, that Christians should be the saddest people on the planet Earth and at the same time the happiest people on this planet Earth. Why should we be the saddest? Because we're in touch with reality, and this is one busted up, broken place. We see a lot of sin and suffering. And yet, in the midst of that, we are happy in the sense that we have a joy and a hope in Jesus Christ because we know that there's no sin or suffering that is a match for his redeeming, restoring grace. So if you're living in the, in the grief all the time without any joy, that's unhealthy. But if it's all joy and no grief, that's unhealthy too. There is this balance. We're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing because our hope is in Jesus Christ. So our hope is in him. Our hope is in him. So it sounds kind of crazy, but yeah, we should be broken and grieve with those that grieve and, and rejoice with those that rejoice. And, and so the world's, the world's joy is based on circumstances. So I, I make a lot of money. I have great relationship. My kids are doing great. I'm very successful in my career. My health is very good. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Those are really great things. In fact, it tells us in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And so, so the things that God has given you, your daddy in heaven who loves you and adores you and gives you nice things and great things, that you should rejoice. But those are gifts from God and pointers back to God. And don't let your rejoicing terminate on those good things. Let it roll on up to your creator who has given you those things. It's going to be a worship experience, but don't turn those good things into God things. Don't turn them into ultimate things because then you're building your joy on your circumstances, on temporal things, on created things. And that's how our world, that's the kind of joy that our world has. What happens when suffering in life takes those away from you? You go from joy to sorrow. Joy and sorrow are mutually exclusive. You either have joy or you have sorrow. But as Christians, ours is simultaneous. 
See, if your joy is your relationship with God, let's say he's your ultimate joy, then when sorrow comes, it drives you deeper into your joy. It doesn't take your joy from you. If your joy is in Christ and you lose your job or a relationship or money or health, it pushes you more into Christ. Your ultimate joy. So, change the subject here just for a moment. We put salt into meat. Why do we put salt in meat? Okay, it it keeps it from uh, going bad. And we put acid and chlorine in our pools to keep the water from going bad. We have joy in our sorrow to keep it from going bad. How does it go bad? How does our sorrow go bad? This is how our sorrow goes bad, and it just gives us a clue that we're building our joy on circumstances and temporal things rather than on the eternal and on God, is this is how sorrow can go bad. We become bitter, we're filled with self-pity, and we're full of despair. If you have Christ, yeah, you might have moments of that, but you shouldn't stay there. You should be consolable and be able to work out of that. But you know that your sorrow is going bad when you are bitter and angry. We live in a culture today, there's a lot of bitterness and a lot of self-pity and a lot of despair. That's sorrow that has gone bad because they don't have joy, they don't have hope in their grief. So how do, we, how do we keep our sorrow from going bad? How can we experience Christian joy? Here's the next one, by being thoughtful, biblical. Look how often Jesus uses the word see. Verse 16, you will see me. Yeah, you're sorrowful now, I'm gonna be leaving, but then you will see me. And the disciples are kind of wrestling with that and they repeat what he says, you will you will see me, disciples quote Jesus, and then verse 19, you will see me, he says it again, you will see me. Verse 22, I will see you. What is he talking about there? What is he talking about there? So, you'll see me, yeah, now imagine how the disciples felt at the cross. All their hopes and dreams dashed to the ground. Here's the Messiah, he's here to save the day and now he's hanging on the cross. Oh my goodness, talk about despair. Talk about bitterness. Talk about self-pity. We followed this guy for three years and this is how it's gonna end and they're all hiding out because they're thinking they're next. Is this how it's gonna end? And then Jesus resurrects from the grave. Oh my goodness, can you imagine how they felt? They were through the roof with joy. That's why he says, and, and when, I, when we see each other at the end of this, you will rejoice and no one can take that joy from you. Can you see why he would say that? It's like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. No one can take that joy from you. You will see that I am risen from the dead. And when they saw Jesus raised from the dead, they didn't just see Jesus raised from the dead. They begin to think out the implications. It just dawned on them. They go, whoa, whoa, Jesus really is God. 
He really is God, and he did come to do what he said he came to do. He came to set us free from from death and sin and evil. Oh, my goodness, he just conquered. Woohoo! That's why they were able to face torture and martyrdom, proclaiming the resurrected Savior. They had a joy that nothing, no one could take from them. Yeah, that's out of this world. So how does the world deal with sorrow and grief? I've got some fill-in-the-blanks here for you. Let's, let's go back to... So the world is more circumstantial in, its, uh, in dealing with sorrow and grief. Here's one way the world deals with it, and, and we can all fall prey to any of these. Try to medicate the pain with pleasure. Try to medicate the pain with pleasure. Drink, party, overwork, have an affair. Lose yourself in some kind of pleasure. This is what drives a lot of addictions. If you've got friends or family members that are driven into perfectionism or workaholism or alcoholism or drugs and all of this stuff and partying on weekends and all that stuff, what are they doing? They're trying to medicate some pain inside of them. That's what's happening. That's why people can live some pretty reckless lives. Here's another one. Try to prevent the pain with manipulation. Let me give you an illustration. If your joy is based on a relationship that you are losing, then you will do whatever you can to get the relationship back. And, and there's some good things you could probably do, but oftentimes, because we're at a deficit anyway, we'll go into some form of manipulation, blackmail, meltdown, blow up to keep that relationship, which makes the relationship worse. Because, because that relationship is not just a, a good thing, it's become a God thing to us, so it overwhelms us. And we'll do whatever we can to keep it. We're desperate. Here's the third thing is we try to overcome the pain with positive thoughts. Think more positive thoughts. Or don't let it get to you. Now let me just level with you here just for a few moments. Let's just say that when, when I go through a real difficult time, when I go through a difficult time, and you come alongside and say to me, Pastor Ray, just think positive thoughts. You can get through this. You can do it, Pastor Ray. I'm going to probably unfriend you at that moment, okay? <laughs> That's not helpful. And actually, you're supposed to. The Bible says, grieve with those that grieve, rejoice with those that rejoice. The best thing you can do when people are going through pain and suffering is to love them. Is just be with, their, with them, walk with them through that. Just be there. Help them to grieve that, and maybe at some point as you... As you pray with them and love on them, you help them to kind of refocus on Jesus and they can begin themselves to think out the implications of what they have in Christ, what they have in Christ. And so you're just there for them, not preaching to them, not in denial of reality. You know, my wife and I have gone to counseling and have gotten a lot of support from people here and, and counselors and some of the best things that people ever said to us, particularly uh, a couple counselors that we went to over the last few years, and the best thing that they said to us, one in particular just said, wow, you should be grieving. That's horrible what you went through. You should be sorrowful. You know what that helped? That helped us in that grief because we realized we're not so crazy. We're not crazy in the head somehow, you know, because they, what they did was they, they validated, yeah, you took a major hit here. But at the same time, I know that God is with you and he loves you. He hasn't abandoned you. So the best thing you can tell the people is just say, man, he hasn't abandoned you. He's still here. He loves you. I know it doesn't feel like it. I know that you're overwhelmed right now. I understand this is a hard hit. 
but I'm here for you. We love you. you got a group of people at Desert Breeze that love you and they're praying for you. And you have a God in heaven who's still here. He's here with you whether you can understand it or not. Those are the kind of things that were really encouraging to us. So we're sorrowful, yet there's, there's a hope that we're, we're, we're reaching after. We're trying to grab a hold of. We're thinking out the implications of, of what, is, what is true in our lives, trying to understand that. The world says don't think about it. Turn your brain off. You know what, and, and so let me, let me add to that just for a minute because I've done funerals for unbelievers and I find it interesting that oftentimes people, unbelievers, will console themselves with, with truths sometimes that uh, aren't really biblically based or there's no basis for it, but they do that just to, maybe, I don't know, it makes them feel better, but like he's in a better place. And I would never say this to them, but I just go, how do you know that? So he's in a better place. What's the basis of that? Well, you know, good people go to a better place and bad people go to not so good place, okay? And so, how, so where's the cutoff? Because I just want to make sure that I'm part of that one that goes to the good place. It's like, so help me out here. Help me out. But they don't think out the implications of that. They're not, what I'm saying is that oftentimes the world doesn't think out the implications of that. He's in, he's in a better place or he's here with us right now. He's watching us from above. And I'm like, ooh, that sounds a little creepy. But... Uh, but I don't think it's biblical, okay? I don't think it's very biblical. But people will say that, but, th- but that's part of that think positive thoughts kind of thing. So the world, don't think about it. Just say some nice thoughts out there and throw them out there. And, but if you really think out the implications of it, you're going to find out, ay, 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 that doesn't have much of a basis for it. But that's the world we live in. Leo Tolstoy, in his uh, small book, Confessions, he was a well-known Russian atheist writer. Around the age of 50, he had an existential crisis. And he asked his friends, who were a bunch of atheists, what happens when you die? And most of his friends said, well, there is no God, and when you die, you don't exist anymore. And eventually the sun will burn out and everything will go away. And Tolstoy said, if that's the case, then why go on? Why should I keep writing books? I mean, everything is meaningless, and in the end, it doesn't matter what I do, whether I'm cruel or good, because in the end, nobody will know. Nobody will know. See, Leo Tolstoy is thinking out the implications of his atheistic beliefs which most people don't, okay, I'm just telling you. And so his friend said, you're thinking too much. Just go out, have fun, enjoy life. And this is why he started heading back to Christianity. Tolstoy's response was this, listen to what he says. What kind of view of the world is only livable if you don't think about what you believe? He says, that doesn't make any sense. See, the world's joy and peace comes from not thinking too much about what we believe about the world. The world's joy is an unintelligent joy, really. I'm trying to be mean. I'm just saying that they, very few people actually think out the implications of the path they're on or what's going on or how they're living their life or any number of things. Christian joy comes from thinking out the implications of what we believe. It's an intelligent Intelligent joy. You think out the implication. Let me give you a definition. You think out the implication of what you believe. Here's a definition for joy. It's on your notes. Joy defined. Joy is a buoyancy 
based on the pleasures found in the eternal privileges that I have in God. Now, it's a buoyancy. We've all done this maybe in a backyard swimming pool. We get a big old beach ball, and we try to get on top of that big beach ball. We try to shove it down, and we try to stand up on it, but eventually it will flip us off, and it will, you try to push it down maybe a couple feet under the water, and it, what does it do? What does that beach ball do? It always comes right back up. Life can push you down as a believer, but it can't keep you down because you have a buoyancy in your life, and that buoyancy is based on the pleasures you find in the eternal privileges that are yours in Christ Jesus. You want to experience joy? You begin to think out the implications of what you have in Jesus Christ, even in the midst of sorrow. I'm telling you, it will fill you with hope. See, that's, that's the definition of joy, these eternal privileges. Now think about this. Let's just let's think about it for a minute. What are some of the eternal privileges that we have that we can find pleasure in? Well, I know one. What's the greatest thing that God ever did for us? He reconciled us to himself through the shed blood of his son. Wow, that's big, <laughs> to say the least. That's really, really big. Okay, what's the greatest thing that he's ever given to us? So the greatest thing he's ever done for us is reconcile us back to himself. What's the greatest thing that he's ever given to us? How about this one? Himself. We have his presence. We have the wealth of his presence. So that alone can get you through any difficulties. If you understood what that means, and in the midst of your sorrow, you begin to remind yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've been reconciled to God once and for all, and I have his presence in my life. I can get through this because, God, you're with me, and you'll never leave me or forsake me. We have the wealth of his presence. We have the comfort of his love. We have the strength of his power. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. Romans 8, 11. We have the significance of being called a child of God. He's our daddy. He's our father. He's going to look after us. He's going to protect us. He's going to take care of us. That's thinking out the implications of what you believe about God and who you are in light of that. The opposite of joy is hopelessness and despair. It's not sorrow. And then counterfeit would be joy based on circumstances. So Christian joy is an intelligent joy. The more you think out the implications of what you believe about Christ, the more you will experience joy in all circumstances. By the way, that's why we're here today, this weekend. That's why I gather, because we want to think out the implications of what's true about God and about us in light of where we're, where we're living our life. I'm going to take the gospel and apply it specifically where we're struggling. And so that's why we get together to remind ourselves of that so that we can be filled with joy even in the midst of our sorrow. Yeah, we grieve, but not as the world grieves. We have hope, and so I gotta be reminded of that. By the way, I get so beat up by life at times, and I know you do too. I need people in my life to help me to get through that. I need people from the outside. I can't do it alone. My wife does a great job. We've got people in this church, and I need people. I need you guys. You guys need me. We need to be together. That's why we're doing a connection party. That's why we do small groups. Because you need people in your corner that are helping you and cheering you on and loving you and supporting you and reminding you of who you are in Christ Jesus, even in the midst of your pain and sorrow and suffering, because that's what's going to get you through that. We need that. We need that. We're desperate for that. And so spiritual disciplines, one of the reasons why I pray in the morning. I mean, I, I'm, when I pray in the morning and when I, when I read my Bible, that's what I'm doing. I'm thinking out the implications 
of what's true about God. God, you're with me. You'll never leave me. Right now, I feel like you've left me, but I know that you haven't because it's based on the Bible, based on your word. You wrote it down so that I could carry it with me, and I'll never forget that. And I've got some friends that are telling me that too, and I'm so thankful for that. I love this verse, another one of my favorite verses when it comes to joy, Psalm 4-7. You have given me more joy than when their grain and new wine abound. Do you hear him thinking out the implications of what he has compared to his friends? See, my wife and I, where we live, I can look catty corner, and there's a, there's a f- couple over there, and there's a family. They're really great people, but they have so many toys, it's unbelievable. I mean, they got this big RV. He's got like a $70,000, $80,000 truck that pulls that thing, and then they, we see him take off on weekends. And uh, they have jet skis, and they have quads, and they've got all these great things, and that's why Nancy and I are their best friends. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm, I'm actually kidding. We are good. We know them, and we, we love all of our neighbors, and we pray for them, but we don't have the slightest bit of envy, and we think it's great. That's fun. That's so cool. We just hope that they're not turning that good, those good things into God things. But we go back, look at this verse once again. You have given me more joy than when our neighbors have all the toys in this world. <laughs> or all the big homes or all the big cars. What? I mean, when you really look at it, you go, why would you ever envy when you know what you have in Christ? It's like, it's like yeah, that's good. But I'm telling you, what I got in him oh, is much better. It's so much better. But so oftentimes as, as believers, we don't live in the reality of that. We have a joy that all the success in this world can't give you and all the suffering in this world can't take from you. That's, that's it. And so here's the next thing is, is prayerful. So we've got to think out the implications. We've got to be thoughtful. We've got to be biblical, but also prayerful. This, we'll, we'll pick up the pace a little bit here. Let's just read through the text, verses 23 through 28. This is beautiful. When you think of prayer, this is what you should be thinking of. Think of intimacy with God. Think of his presence. Man, <laughs> you're connecting with God at a deep level in prayer, sharing your heart. He's connecting with you, and you have his presence in your life. How could that not bring joy? And that's the point that he's trying to get across here. In that day, you will ask me nothing. Uh, you will ask nothing of me. He's talking about post-resurrection. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father, and he uses this phrase "Father" over and over again because he just wants us to know, our Daddy in heaven, our Father. He loves us. He's going to take care of us. He loves giving us good gifts. And, he's, and then he uses this phrase over and over again too, in my name. So I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. There's that phrase again, in my name. Ask and you will receive that your, that your joy may be full. Now, he's not talking about junk, you know, all the temporal stuff, the created stuff, although he does give us those things. He does take care of our needs, does a great job at that. And really, when you look at Americans, we're, we're crazy wealthy, okay, compared to the world. We're really wealthy. He's given us tremendous gifts and things, and it's just it's pretty amazing. And so he does give us all those things. But I don't think he's talking about fullness of joy does not come from temporal things or created things. It actually comes from more of God in our life, having him in your life. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, 
And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father, there's, you see this over and over again, himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So when you pray in Jesus' name, he says that multiple times, pray in Jesus' name, you know that God will hear whatever you ask for and will be as attentive and willing to fulfill your desire as if Jesus himself were asking. So when we put that at the end of the prayer, in Jesus' name, that's what it means. He hears us as if he hears his own son. Because you see, he, Jesus died on the cross. He took all of our unrighteousness and it was placed on him and he died for that and he gave us his perfect righteousness. So every time we come before the throne of grace, that's how the Father sees us, through Jesus Christ. And so he loves you and adores you and delights in you as if you were Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thought. And we are to pray to him as our Father, as Jesus modeled and taught. God will give to you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knew because he's a daddy. And we know based on Luke 11, 5 through 13, your Father will not give you a serpent or a scorpion. He will give you good things. And actually, at the end of that prayer, he just says, he will give you the Holy Spirit. You'll get more of him. And man, if you have more of him and you're connecting with him, you're going to have tremendous joy. Because we know, Psalm 1611, in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So you need to think out the implications of what you believe about, about God and about yourself biblical thinking, and then you need to pray, and prayer is connecting and experiencing his presence in your life, giving you a joy unlike you've ever experienced before, and why we can have Christian joy. Look at verses 29 through 33. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. In other words, it's going to get ugly, guys. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Here's a great memory verse, verse 33, 1633. He says, I have said these things to you so that in me you have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Let me give you the last three, three fill-in-the-blanks here. So Jesus made us his joy. He's talking about crucifixion. He's talking about going to the cross. And we know that Jesus made us his joy. Hebrews 12, 2 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was the joy set before him? That he would reconcile us to the Father. That was the joy. You're his joy. That you'd be brought into the family. And I'm telling you, this is what we'll do. If you understand that, and the more you begin to understand that and see that, Jesus made us his joy. Here's the next one. So that we could make him our joy. I love what it says in Psalm 43.4. He calls God his exceeding joy. And by the way, Psalm 42 and 43, he's struggling. He's saying, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Come on, put your hope in God. I will go to God, my exceeding joy. Yes, even in the midst of hardship and difficulty, he's reaching out for that hope 
and the joy that only can be found in him. So Jesus made us his joy so that we could make him our joy so that why? We can overcome the world. Listen, if he's your ultimate joy, you can overcome anything in your life. If he's your ultimate joy. Let me end with a story. In 1820, a little girl was born in Brewster, New York. When she was six months old, she had some kind of sickness that that damaged her optic nerves. And by the time that she was five, in 1825, she was declared fully blind. Three years later, at eight years old, she wrote a poem about her blindness. Keep in mind, she's eight years old. She writes this poem. Listen to what the poem says. Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented, I shall be. How many blessings that I enjoy that other people don't, to weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Little eight-year-old girl, you know, some of us might say, yeah, 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 that's sweet. But she's eight years old and doesn't know the suffering that is ahead of her. She lived to be almost 95 years old. 90 years of blindness. She stayed very true to this philosophy. Her name was Fanny Crosby, one of the most famous hymn writers ever. She wrote 9,000 hymns. She was often asked, aren't you sad because of your blindness? This is how she responded. She said, yes, my blindness is a tragedy. But on the other hand, having my sight might have been a distraction. She says, for one, I got a lot of work done. (laughs) And also, because I have found where true joy can be found. Here's the third thing she said. I discovered that there is only one kind of blindness that can really destroy you, and the gospel has healed me of that. Oh my goodness, where do you get that kind of joy? Where do you get that kind of joy? You get it only, listen to me, you get it only from Jesus. It's only Jesus. Now listen to me. There's a joy in Christ that all the success in this world cannot give you. And all the suffering in this world can't take it from you. No one can take this joy from you. My prayer for you is that you'd have that joy. That we'd be a people that are filled with joy. And people would be coming to Desert Breeze going, man, where do you get that joy? Because we want that joy too. And we'd point them to Jesus. We'd point them to Jesus. Next weekend, Jesus prays for you. It's a powerful text. It's the whole chapter 17. We're going to be able to listen in on Jesus' prayer for us. And it's really telling us what Jesus wants most for you, for you and I. And so I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any other available elders. If you are new, we would love to meet you. If you need prayer for any particular reason, we'd love to pray with you. Particularly this, if you're struggling with joy this morning, I'd love to be able to pray with you, kind of help you with that. And then if you have any questions, we'd love to answer those questions for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So Father God, thank you that you are a God of joy and the gospel is a message of joy and you've called us to be people of contagious joy. Teach us how to daily think out the implications biblically 
and prayerfully of the eternal privileges that are ours in Christ Jesus, filling us with an unavoidable and uncircumstantial joy. Jesus, thank you for making us your joy through the cross so that we can now make you our joy and overcome anything in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys. God bless you.